taking those two prongs of the inner work and bringing our personal power to a group to make it exponentially more powerful, we can get things done. A photographer, a civil rights lawyer, and an Episcopal priest walk into a bar. Okay. This week's show is no joke, though. Our guest, the Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford Esquire, is a civil rights lawyer, a photographer, and an Episcopal priest. Stay tuned for a great conversation that encompasses journeys both personal and cultural, the third rails of politics and religion, and where all those things come together in Dr. Marsha's ongoing work for social justice. You know, you actually left out part of that joke, right? I did? Yeah, you left out the part about the, the two skeptical secular podcasters who were already in the bar. Oh, yeah. Yeah, neither one of us grew up in a regular religious tradition, and I, for one, am so wary of that dark power that organized religion can and has wielded to oppress and repress. I mean, even the Buddhists in Myanmar are killing people in the name of. Yeah, they should know better, right? One would think. But they don't. No, but I, you know, but I can't deny that the U.S. civil rights movement was championed by religious leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't deny that church ladies in Georgia helped swing the U.S. Senate. Yeah, don't mess with the church uh, ladies. We can't ignore the fact that a Jesuit priest, Father Boyle, created Homeboy Industries in L.A. to help young community members like remove their tattoos and oh, de-escalate yeah. violence and develop alternatives to gang life. And make bread, right? And make bread and, and businesses. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Marsha, our guest, present the case for a a progressive and more engaged Christianity. And I I hope you listeners are too. Hello, hotties. Welcome to the weekly podcast for people craving a sense of connectedness, a dose of empathy, a glimpse of the way forward, and an opportunity to engage. The Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford, which we love saying over and over, is an expert in particular in that community engagement and and glimpse of the way forward, an expert in helping people find ways to work for justice. Mm -hmm. She started out as a civil rights attorney and she's represented society's most marginalized. Her ministry is in the Southwest Detroit's Latinx population. And that's an international port with this really aggressive regional ice director. Yikes. Yeah, yeah. there's lots to, lots of work to do there. Marsha's an Episcopal priest. She holds a Master of Divinity from the Church of Divinity School of the Pacific. She earned her Doctor of Ministry in Political Theology from the Pacific School of Religion. And recently, Dr. Ledford founded Political Theology Matters LLC to help people develop a personal mission grounded in theology for greater social justice. That's my kind of theology. Yeah, 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 yeah. Marsha teaches, speaks, and preaches about political theology in varied forms, and she maintains this very intriguing blog, intriguing even for a secular uh, skeptic like me. And Marsha also happens to be a writer and a photographer. We talked about a blog a little bit already. We got so caught up, though, in talking about civil rights and personal growth that we didn't get around to talking about creativity. Before we get into our inspiring conversation with Dr. Marsha, we wanted to ask you for a quick favor. Yes, please. No, we don't want to borrow 20 bucks. We don't? Not today. Okay. 
But we would, however, really appreciate it if you take a couple of minutes and pop over to Podchaser, iTunes, or our website and give us a nice review and a bunch of stars. We put a lot of thought and love into this podcast, hoping that it will be of value to you. It would mean so much to us to find out what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong, but mostly what we're doing right. So go to podchaser.com slash here together to leave us a five-star rating and help more hotties find here together. Yeah, you could actually go over there and read a couple of the reviews that Adam and Claire Oh, yeah, we've got some nice yeah, ones, huh? Absolutely. I absolutely. love go check it. it out. Yeah, go check it out at podchaser.com yeah. slash here together. And thank you to the people who have already done that. We love you. All right, let's do the checklist. Yes, the cats are secured. Uh, Munchie has no idea what's heading his way. Oh. For those of you, for those of you yeah. who checked out our Facebook Live on Saturday, you know that we have dibs in on a new podcast. A little tiny, a little not floof. fully weaned, little floofy, orangey. He's kind of uh, kind of breakfast cereal colored. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we're going to name him Gus. So Munchie has no idea. So he thinks he's secure right now. He has no idea what's headed his way. It's coming. All right. And the tape is rolling. Check. Caffeine at optimal levels. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. The microphones are hot. Check. Check. We are here, here together. together. And welcome, everybody, to episode 77 of the Here Together podcast. Can you believe that we've gotten this far? 77. We just keep going. We just keep going. Exactly. Exactly. And we are here with the, you ready? Yeah. The Reverend, Reverend Dr. Dr. Marsha Ledford Esquire. Esquire. We've been, we've been practicing, <laughs> been practicing that title uh, all week. Thank we you for being here. We enjoy saying it. Oh, it's a delight to be here. Thank you. And you did very well. Good. Yeah. And I didn't even have to look at my notes. Um, so before we kind of dive into your work in, in civil rights law and and now in the spiritual realm and this concept of political theology, we have the same question that we ask all of our other guests to start off with. We're just super curious what 10-year-old Marsha wanted to be. Uh, I wanted to be a doctor when I was 10 years old. A medical doctor? Yeah. What was it? What was it about the the medical doctor idea you think that was attractive to little Marsha? In retrospect, you know, I've done some like career testing and things like that, and I like gizmos. You know, so I think part of it was the instruments. I I liked that doctors helped you, and it just seemed like it would be really cool to do that. So yeah, why why didn't you end up in like biomedical engineering or something? Organic chemistry. Oh right. <laughs> I'm not uh I'm not a math person. Mm, yeah. Uh my wife Linda calls it marshy math, if that gives you any idea. <laughs> yes, indeed. Marshy math. Yeah, yeah. For yeah, for me it was for me it was the second semester of calculus. So I went to I went to university thinking I was gonna be a microbiologist and I was gonna go work for the Centers for Disease Control. Mm -hmm. And uh, that ended abruptly Rah, right. at the very beginning of my second semester. Yes, it was a rude awakening. Yeah. So, I just went straight to art school. I knew better. You know, you sure did. Yeah. You sure did. <laughs> I have to ask, are there gizmos in your life now? Yeah, well, the photography. Oh, okay. Uh, that counts. Oh, there's all manner of gizmos. Yay. It, they cost in increments of $500 each, too. 
So <laughs> tell me about it. Tell yeah. me about it as, so a, then, as a as a podcaster and virtual yeah. presenter. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. hip deep in all of that. So, uh, Dr. Marsha, what's what's happening in Detroit these days with with COVID and 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 the the rise of the BLM movement or the re reemergence of the BLM movement in the last eighteen months? What have you been seeing? What can you tell us? Well, I would say for the most part, fortunately. There haven't been the kind of skirmishes, that's not even the right word, there haven't been the same kind of altercations as has gone on in, say, Portland or Seattle or the like. And uh, in terms of managing COVID, of course, early on, we were hit kind of hard. But the mayor, Duggan, and his staff and the black churches in the city of Detroit, I think, have been instrumental in really doing a good job of rolling out vaccination sites and getting people vaccinated. So that's been really good. So we haven't had the kind of, uh, you know, police protester conflict. And I'm very thankful for that. It it never ends well when this happens. I understand the frustration and the, you know, the need to make a point. I get that. But when it devolves into just destroying things, it, 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 Nobody wins when we do that. Right. Well, you know, your life is um, so full of different tacks and uh, different schooling, different uh, degrees, you know, art, uh, law, uh, obviously theology and and religion. We're just going to kind of spiral around and and kind of kind of pick away at it and see where we get. But one question that I have for you is. In another podcast that I listened to you that you were on, you mentioned that you felt a calling when you were a teen. Yes. And for sort of secular folks, that's a strange concept. Okay. And I'm just kind of curious, can you, what does it feel like huh. to be called? What is that? What, or what was it like for you at least? Yeah. You, you've already touched on a very important part of it. I think it's, it is unique because each of us is unique and each of us has a unique relationship with uh, our creator. And so, you know, as a church kid, I, I, I never, I don't ever know a time when we didn't go to church. So that was always a part of my growing up. And typically people describe it as a nudge or a, a push, an inkling, and it's often regarding something that we do not want. (laughs) And typically it doesn't go away. And mine went on for 30 years. So, you know, the the nudge, the nudge kept hitting you in the, hitting you in the ribs or. Yeah. Just, just bugging me. (laughs) We often on this podcast use the analogy of the phone ringing. And it sounds like you didn't, you let that phone go to voicemail for 30 years before you answered it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, a fair thing to say. I mean, in in some regards, it it was it could probably be considered quite reasonable that I just ignored it because when I was coming of age in the late 70s and early 80s, I sure wasn't seeing uh, women at the pulpit or the altar. I didn't grow up in the Episcopal Church. I was raised an American Baptist, which is one of the more uh, a progressive end. But even still, that was not something that I thought was going to be available to me at all. And then, of course, I came out. So then I doubly thought that. So I decided instead to go to law school and help people that way. 
So I guess there's always this interest in the helping professions. And of course, uh, being a priest is that probably more so than anything else. And I just decided one day, I just said, okay, I'll do it. I was talking to the Holy Spirit. And I said, but you're going to have to help me because I have no idea what I'm doing. And I was in my late 40s by then. So, but she did. She helped me. Yeah. Mm. So the so the nudge turned into uh, what, a hand? A, a... Yep. Um, and, and there are some techniques that you can do when you're in what we call discernment, discernment of spirits. For example, I did I did a process that was created by Elizabeth Liebert, who teaches spirituality uh, at one of the schools of the Graduate Theological Union. And she says, you know, make a list, write down your question and make it very specific. You know, do you want me to be ordained? And then you ask people that you trust, you create a circle, a cohort, if you will, and you ask those people to pray that for a period of time you know, and see what they come up with. And then in the meantime, uh, do some research on, say, seminaries. And, you know, if you don't know what tradition you want to be ordained in, then obviously you've got to look into that. And then um, test it. And then also listen very carefully to things that people say, because that was part of what ratified the call, was the things that people were saying who weren't in the prayer part. And then make a decision and then see how you feel. If you have a sense of being uncomfortable or unsettled, then you probably need to go back to the drawing board. I felt a tremendous sense of peace when I finally mm. said, okay. Yeah. Did yeah. you feel relief? Oh, yeah. I felt relieved and, you know, a little petrified, but mm. it, it felt really good. The decision, once I made it, felt really right. And it was ratified by the people that I asked to pray about it. That's fascinating. So it was, so the decision was embedded in community from the beginning. It's yes. not a, it's not a, just a pure egotistical decision. That's there's right. a, there's a spiritual nudge, but then there's this community investigation. Right. And in our tradition, that's, you know, and that's also quite biblical in the book of Acts. We get lots of examples of discernment and the church has taken those examples and incorporated them into our ordination process because then at the parish level, I have to go through, a, a, we call it a, a discernment committee. And uh, it's, for, it's com comprised of people from my, the parish that is going to raise me up for ordination. And we go through a six-month period of talking. Wow. So do, do all uh, denominations have that community-embedded process? I would expect at some level they do. I don't know the specifics of other ordination processes, but I, I know that ours has like probably 75 steps. Oh my gosh! Ooh. See, this is just so how this is just how ignorant I am. Yeah, we have no idea. <laughs> I mean, there's kind of a there's kind of a I don't know. I don't know if it's a meme or kind of a trope. Uh, you know, the idea that maybe it's you know that that somebody feels the calling and you know in the movie or whatever else, the next thing you know, they're in front of a congregation or they're in front of a crowd or they've mm -hmm. they've felt the spirit and they're just coming out. So it's really interesting to know that there's more to it than that. I think I think you know my assumptions about it and that idea that things just happen that quickly is just sort of part of our culture, which doesn't exist very well in the in-between places. Right. I, I think that's a really good assessment too. Yeah. I, there's definitely a, a gap. There's an 
lack of uh, understanding of how these things happen. And they are important because of the, as we've all seen from the news and the, you know, uh, child molestation scandals that uh, have arisen in various places. The, this is very serious business. And so the church has a responsibility to really put us through our paces. I had to have a psychological evaluation. I had to have a background check. I had to make financial disclosures. I had to do two semesters of field placement. Uh, we have to do 16 weeks of clinical pastoral education at a certified hospital to learn how to be a chaplain, to you know, help people who are in distress, either the patient or the family. So there were, not to least of which is uh, three years of seminary. Right. Wow. Right. Did you have to release your taxes though? <laughs> I had to submit all my financial records. Oh my gosh, I was kind of joking. So you are uh, more qualified than the president of the United States. (laughs) The former. Yeah. Yeah. More vetted anyway, more vetted anyway than, more vetted, than yes. any well, president. That was well, a quite the debacle, but anyway. That, yeah. That's so great, though, that they do take it so seriously and that you are so well prepared by this process when you finally begin, when you finally get your assignment, when you finally wind up in your community, you are already been, it sounds like you've already been part of the community. Right. And then mm-hmm. you've been through... B- you know, a pretty intense boot camp, emotional boot camp to prepare you mm-hmm. because right. even, you know, molestation aside, you're affecting people's lives in this yes. role. People are counting on you to help them deal with the most difficult things they're going to go through. Clinical pastoral education really helped us develop those skills. Yeah. So can you say more about that? What was that education? So I spent, uh, I did a 16-week internship with a hospital that is certified to do clinical pastoral education, mm. and you're uh, assigned a cohort, and we would meet every Monday, all day, and talk about all kinds of stuff, and talk about things that push our own buttons, things that, you know, uh, sort of delve or trudge into our baggage that yeah. potentially can affect us and uh, steer us the wrong way when we are trying to help somebody else. In other words, to be able to identify when maybe we need to step back. Or tag somebody else in, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we, we would do case studies where we would encounter patients and then do what is called a verbatim, where you would uh, recount it to your cohort. And of course, this is all highly confidential, um, but it is a way to learn uh, not only from our own experience, but from that of others uh, and what they go through. And you see insights into them and we get to know each other and we get to know each other's baggage. So we can also help our cohorts, the members of our cohort, to identify their, you know, their touchy spots. So again, com- combining that personal work and, and community embedded yep. relationship work. Yeah. Again, mm-hmm. it's community oriented. Yeah. And then we have uh we would have hours on the on the hospital floors. And I was assigned to to two specific uh floors with specific patients, specific kinds of patients. Hmm. And uh you know, we would have to put it and then we had to be over we had to be the chaplain on call overnight at the hospital for seven nights. So and they have uh you know, up uh, uh quarters for the chaplain to stay and 
you know, you have a beeper with you. And if it, if they beep you in the middle of the night, you go and uh, respond to the issue. So you get to you get to be a little bit of a doctor there. You kind of had a, you kind of had a you kind of had a residency. Oh, yeah. Being on call. Yeah. But I didn't get to use any scopes or, uh, you yeah. know, tools Gosh. or cool machines. But I'm curious if you have, uh, you know, a powerful memory from that time, a powerful story from that time that either that either confirmed your calling or maybe challenged it. Hmm. Um. You know, I saw some, I saw some amazing things. Uh, two things happened. I had confirmation that I was on the right path, and that I wanted to be pastoral and, in fact, sacramental. You know, for patients who would want the sacraments. Of course, I couldn't give them at the time because I wasn't ordained. But so that was very strong, and that that is something that you need to you know listen for very carefully. But I also learned that. But I didn't like the short interaction with the patients because once they're discharged, you never see them again. There's no contact. It would be highly inappropriate to do that. So it was hard for me because I realized I wanted that continuity of care with them and to see how they're doing. Uh, and I, I couldn't do that. And I, I didn't like that. Well, let me let me spiral back out for a second and just ask about your time as a civil rights lawyer. And in particular, I think as, you know, we're a couple of white podcasters, we're guessing that most of our audience is white. Most white people don't need a civil rights attorney. Some some women in business, obviously, but for the most part, I'll speak for me. As a, as a, <laughs> you have never needed as a, a civil as rights a, lawyer. As a straight passing white male, in America, I, you know, I don't have much call for a civil rights attorney. What, what were you doing and what did you see in that realm of law that, that kept you at it for 23 years? I think that's a really in, insightful observation. Uh, straight white males generally don't need to call a civil rights attorney. So I had never really thought about it like that. One exception to that was one of my first HIV patients. By the time he came to me, he was very sick. He had been disowned by his family. This was in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And he wanted to get Social Security supplemental insurance. And it hadn't been awarded yet for an HIV patient. And we won it. I mean, that's the, the short story to that mm -hmm. was. That wasn't HIV wasn't considered a, a disability or right. I mean, it was at the early stages and we were still sort of working through that whole process. Hmm. And so we won the Bennett's for him, which helped him tremendously, especially just to get some shelter and basic so needs, basic needs. Um, and he didn't not live long after that, but the victory was important to him. So that was an example. So he was a white man, but he was a gay man. Um, yeah. And so most of my clients were from the LGBTQ community. Um, it was very hard to do transgender related cases at that time. Just try and change a birth certificate. Um, oh, I, I mean, it was, it was really, really tough. I always felt that members of our trans community had it a lot harder than even we did. I, I think that particularly gay men and transgendered people have uh, suffered a lot 
back in the day, if you were bisexual, you could kind of pass, you know, and lesbians, frankly, weren't really taken all that seriously. Because they're um, women, so they don't matter. Be because they're <laughs> women and they were missing something. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> not dear, dear listeners. Uh, yes. Dear, Marcia's dear eyebrows listeners. just went up just so you yeah. just see. <laughs> yep. So, uh, most of my clients were from the LGBT community. I was doing, uh, child custody cases and for the men, for the dads, uh, HIV was a terrible problem, whether they had it or not, because, you know, the implication or the insinuation was that they were going to expose their children if they had custody of them or even visitation to HIV, which was not true. So that was an issue. Uh, women also were dealing with, you know, custody issues. Men were really experiencing AIDS discrimination. So there was all of that kind of stuff going on. I also did a fair amount of criminal defense work. And I did it in Detroit where the general population of the city is about 80%, 85% African-American. And I was definitely seeing the workings of the prison industrial complex with beautiful young men being sentenced to lifetime probation for a, you know, a possession charge, which frankly, nobody can be on probation forever and not mess something up, even if it's a speeding ticket, which would count, you know, as a civil infraction. So that always seemed really stupid to me. And that would, one of those infractions, one of those probation infractions would just send them back for the full. For whatever the the uh, original sentence was going to be. Any you of know? us would mess that up. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're yeah. late once for a, a, to meet your probation officer or right. you can't pay back your fees or whatever. Right. And you're just in trouble. And at the time, the legislature, the Michigan State Legislature, passed a disclosure uh, penalty or crime where if you engaged in sexual penetration uh, and did not disclose your HIV positivity, you could do a four-year, you know, stint. It was a four-year felony. And that just seems so incredibly stupid to me because then what is that going to encourage people to do? Not get tested. It's not going to solve the problem of personal responsibility for protecting yourself. So there was a lot of um, uh, stupidity and a sense of wanting to punish people who were HIV positive. So you've been on the, you've been on the kind of the front lines. I don't know if that's too dramatic a word, or I don't know if you would describe it that way, but you've been on the front lines of these big cultural problems, these big, you know, pandemics, the HIV pandemic, and then this kind of epidemic of mass incarceration. Yep. You've been on the front lines of that for a while and you've been seeing, I mean, it's like Kelly and I have only kind of figured out what was going on with mass incarceration. Like Five years ago or something. I, I don't know that I've been aware of it that long. So it, it seems like you were a little bit out in front. Did it, did it feel like that? What did, it, what did it feel like to be kind of working in, in kind of an arena that people didn't, you know, both with HIV and, and mass incarceration, it took a long time for uh, mass culture to get catch up. To catch up. Yeah, yeah it, that, it was hard. I, I mean, I don't know if I was really all that conscious of it at the time, like how clueless everybody was. I was just trying to deal with the situation at hand. But it is part and parcel of our inability, when I say our, 
white people to understand how systemic our racism is, how deep in the DNA of the American society it rests. It's almost like a chromosome. You know, it's, uh, uh, and depending on where you live, it's teased out more or not, but uh, it's definitely there. And as a matter of fact, when I wrote my dissertation on public theology, I talked about how this country has, we had slavery for 10 generations before we became a country. Wow. And and then, of course, we had slavery, and then we had a civil war to settle that in the emancipation of the slaves. But then we had a period of about 60 years where lynching was the sort of sport of the day. The post office didn't ban the mailing of postcards depicting lynchings until 1908. Yeah. And then we went into this period of uh, lynchings still went on, but then we just basically codified socioeconomic exploitation. And George Floyd was lynched. Lynching is an extrajudicial killing. In other words, there's there's no charges, there's no prosecutor, there's no judge, there's no defense attorney. And it is a killing that occurs in this kind of a climate. And the Michael Brown, Breonna Taylor, Freddie Gray, Ahmad Arbery, you yeah. can just go on and on and on. Mr. Arbery was out for a run. He was uh, a black man running in a white neighborhood. Yep. Yep, and he and he went through he went through a house that was under construction, yeah. and that was one of the justifications that his that his killers used. Kelly and I. Oh have, yeah, we, we snoop around in in uh, houses that are being built, and and many of us have probably done that very thing. Oh yeah, uh, you know, he did not contemplate that he would be dead twenty minutes later. No, I'm sure, um, until he saw the shotgun anyway, but. The truth of the matter is, is um, we have this appetite for killing black people in this country. And this is the truth. And this is what we have to deal with. You know what? Let's just take a pause right now. Yeah. Normally, we, normally on this podcast, we like to take a pause when there's been something sort of uplifting. But I think that's something we all need to contemplate. And and those of you who are listening, if you found yourself bristling at the statement that systemic racism is part of our DNA, that it's part of our chromosome, breathe through that. Mm-hmm. It is a challenging thing for us to admit, to, to deal with, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make it less true. And stick with us because we're going to unpack some stuff. Yeah. And we're going to, we can talk about some ways to counteract that. Oh, wonderful. Excellent. Excellent. We'll be right back with more of the Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford Esquire. Love it. And the Here Together podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate you being a part of these really intriguing, sometimes challenging conversations. If this conversation about activism and religion and spirituality is your jam, You might want to check out episode 44, How to Be Authentic and Whole, 
with co-pastors Kate and Colby Martin. Mm, they talk about so their, good, yeah, so good. Yeah, and a, you know, a tiny bit painful. They yeah. were in a kind of traditional conservative religious tradition and religious family, and it just stopped working for them. Yeah, it didn't feel right after a while. No, and then there was this kind of long process of them getting out and forming their own progressive, inclusive congregation in San Diego where they welcome everybody. everybody. And they were so welcoming for us, even though it was our podcast, it mm -hmm. kind of felt like their podcast, but yeah. So check that out, episode 44. You also might want to listen to episode 49, how to get off the couch to local activists with Rosie Dixon and Ren Manning talking about the activism and challenges here in Prescott, Arizona. We are no longer strictly a local podcast, but Prescott, unfortunately, is kind of a... It's a model for what a lot of communities are going through. Yep. Yep. We got some uh, very uh, virulent and upfront racism and some awesome, dedicated activists. So mm -hmm. check that out. You can also join our Facebook group, the Here Together Community Lab, if you want to hang out with like-minded hotties, hear more from our esteemed guests, and be first to know any Here Together news. We also go live most Saturday mornings, as we mentioned, kind of nine-ish Arizona time, with the science report, in which we share our progress or non-progress with the week's assignment. <laughs> Last week, Claire Vandepolder joined us for the science report, and it was like a video mini episode. We had a total blast. So be sure to check in with us on Saturday mornings, because that's the perfect place for you to chime in and let us know what you're up to. Yeah, we'll also be um, posting pictures of Gus. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's get back to the episode. And welcome back to the Here Together podcast. We are talking today with the Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford Esquire, who is knee deep, hip deep in dealing with the difficulties that are plaguing our society right now. Racism, violence. Homophobia. So you mentioned the phrase political theology, and, th and that's your LLC, political yes. theology matters. Can you explain to us what what uh, what putting those two words together means to you? Okay. So it's a very simple uh, test, if you will, or formula. Uh, it comes in two prongs. Lawyers love prongs. We evaluate <laughs> prongs to determine if something, you know, satisfies a test or not. So here you are, prong one. Prong one is speaking your faith tradition, your teachings in the public square in order to achieve greater social justice. So I include the second prong. The first prong is speaking faithfully. So for example, if you take a Christian example, Jesus said, feed my sheep. Well, what does that look like? Does that mean just, you know, hand out food? What does it mean? Does it include shelter? Is it about, you know, spiritually feeding people? Is it, you know, it's all in my view, the interpretation should be very broad. And so we need to be speaking about our responsibility to see that the least of these, as Jesus called them, those who struggle on the margins are cared for. That's one example of, you know, speaking faithfully. And then the second component, of course, is in public. And folks say to me, all right, what's public? Well, it's, it's any place where we are free to go, basically, outside. 
It could be speaking in front of a committee at City Hall or the halls of Congress. It could be in a public park. It could be on a podcast. Yay. <laughs> it could be on, you know, traditional media, conventional media, radio and television. But anywhere that members of the public have an opportunity to, to hear you, it constitutes public space. So the first prong, speaking, faith, speaking a faithful message about some policy or law in the public square and then to achieve social justice or greater social justice. There's a little fourth prong. It's like the pinky. And that is, you know, to as large an audience as you, as you can. Mm, yeah. you know, sometimes it's going to be very small and sometimes it isn't. But the important thing is to, to broadcast it as best you can. Marcia, none of those things are uncontroversial or non-controversial. Right. Correct. <laughs> In the American tradition of religion, there's this idea that religion is a private thing and you know, mm -hmm. the, that it's that it's to be done only at church and that, mm -hmm. you know, that it's not supposed to leak out of the of the congregation. Right. It's um this is especially true in, in in the Protestant sphere, where piety has been largely privatized uh, across the history of the the country, especially during the Second Great Awakening. So yes, I I agree. Um, I think that's partly why people went completely bonkers over Colin Kaepernick knelt down at the the beginning of the football game, because he just, in my opinion, just jammed the motherboard when he challenged a great big bowl of white people. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh my gosh. In, in a prayerful way. Yeah. I mm. think that's one of the things that just made everybody go completely mad is he knelt down, you know, yeah. honorably, prayerfully. He's a devout Christian. So uh, he's, uh, he's a hero of mine. Hmm. And so anyway, um, uh, faith has been privatized to a large degree, and in, in the United States is overwhelmingly Protestant. Yeah, and and the idea that the that faith and speaking of faith is connected to that it, that it is even part of civil dialogue, and and by civil I, I mean it the way you mean it, not like nice dialogue, being civil to one not, another, but yeah. but in in the civic square out out in public. That's that's a controversial idea. The idea that religion should be a part of the conversation. Well, or spirituality people, should be part of the conversation. You know, when I start uh talking sometimes, uh people will get bent out of shape with me about the separation of church and state. And they'll say a couple of different things like, you know, this has no place in the public square. Well, that is not true. Just look at the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That was Christian theology on the streets of America, calling for the end of injustice, calling off the dogs. So the First Amendment bans Congress from doing certain things. And, and by interpretation in other court cases, it applies now to the sister states and local government and so forth. But when you speak your faith in the public square, you are not establishing a religion because you're not the Congress. And you have the right to free speech in the public square. You have and you have the right for the to the government not to impede what you're doing. That's what it's all about. State action, 
against your rights of free speech, free exercise of religion, because let me tell you, I have a right to exercise my religion. And if that's talking about, you know, we need to include increase uh, SNAP supplements, those are uh, supplemental nutrition uh, benefits. What we used uh, because, to call what we used to call food stamps. Yeah, because uh, children are going hungry in COVID because their parents can't work. Then I'm going to talk about that because for me there is a direct line. There's a direct correlation between what Christ commanded us to do and what's happening in our world. So I have a right to talk about that in the public square, and I have a right to assemble and you know uh, petition the government for the redress of grievances. And this comes from a faith perspective or a non-faith perspective. It doesn't matter. And any faith perspective is also protected. We can't privilege one faith tradition over another. So why does religion or spirituality need to be a part of that dialogue? I mean, especially considering that there's a whole other religious slash spiritual perspective that's that's regressive and is... Yeah not necessarily in, in favor of civil rights and, and, and ending poverty. Right. So that's a really, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, every major world religion has some aspect or element of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We call this in Christianity, this is the golden rule. Uh, you know, all of our world religions practice some, something along this line, some cognate that respects the other respects the other person or all of creation. Speaking faithfully in the public square with an interfaith coalition based on this tenet alone is incredibly powerful to, uh, to be able to craft more inclusive and compassionate policy and law. So that's part of my answer. Mm -hmm. I also think that James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and some of the others who were involved in putting the First Amendment together we're interested in having a, a collection of ideas come to the public to uh, work out what we should do. And this was like nothing the world had really seen before. I mean, yes, the Roman Forum, but, you know, in England, before the First Amendment, you could get your con tongue cut out for, you know, saying something against the crown. This was like nothing the world had really seen it, it, and uh, Madison called it the great experiment. It's, it was designed to create a place where we can come together and arrive at the truth. John Stuart Mill said that uh, mm. uh, open to, in open debate, do you find the truth? So that's another reason why we need to bring all of our perspectives, and some of them are horrible. I'll just put it there. But we need to bring all of our perspectives to the, to the public and figure out which one is best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or what combinations. Or what combinations. Um, you know, we have uh, lost our ability to think critically in this country. It's very scary to me. And we have lost the ability to truly be a democracy where, you know, ev everybody's allowed to speak in safe space and then we, we figure it out. This is one of the most important questions to me, and it goes all the way back to... <clears throat> It was T.H. White, right? And the, was it T.H. White? No, Auden. W.H. Auden. About, you know, the, the bester lacking all conviction and the 
I'm going to get the, I'm going to get the quote wrong, but the best lack all conviction and the, and the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Mm. It seems like progressive Christianity. It seems like a, a Christian faith dedicated to equality and, and to the golden rule is not as loud or not as effective as religious movements or denominations that are more interested in tribal separateness mm-hmm. and and prosperity dominance. dominance prosperity gospel all this kind of stuff is is there something that's just not attractive about progressive christianity or do, or or do I, we I, need better marketing <laughs> <laughs> we i don't i don't know i shouldn't have said we but we do need better marketing that's part of what i'm doing mm. and i certainly can't and wouldn't presume to do it my you know myself but you raise a something that just keeps me up at night and that is christianity's getting a really bad rap these days on on january 6th we could see flags that said you know jesus saves and all of this other appalling messaging about this particular group of insurrectionists viewing this as a part of their faith expression so they'll do that but they'll have a fit over Colin Kaepernick, you know, kneeling down over police brutality. It's a very strange and disturbing juxtaposition of faith expression with respect to uh, making a public statement. Right, because you're talking about ecumenical expression. You're talking about, you know, interreligious dialogue, essentially, mm-hmm. and and folks who are on the other side, I can't think of a better way to put it, are much more, are not interested in mm-hmm. sharing ideas. You're interested in sharing ideas and all of the ideas being out in the marketplace that for some reason, there's some sort of litmus test of ideas that conservative and conservative religious folks have. I don't, I don't know what that's about. Well, part of it is about race. Part of it is that this group is comprised almost exclusively of white people who are extremely fearful of lo- losing white privilege and losing their power in society as white people. That's, uh, I mean, I can't really put it any diff- more differently than that. It's, that's what it is. Do you think they're is. spiritually involved and engaged in religion because they're afraid? Or are they spiritually involved in religion or is it just an identity? Well, the church, unfortunately, uh, Christianity has been in league with racism and slavery all along. You know, the preacher would get in the pulpit and, and preach Ephesians, slaves obey your masters. You know, salvation and redemption was for the afterlife. It wasn't for the a life of servitude. So the church, the white church worked hard to uh, use the Bible to, you know, subjugate the slaves. So That streak, you know, in my opinion, that streak of racism has very much been present throughout all of this and has never really let go, particularly in the South. And I I have Southern family. I've been down there many, many times in my life, and the culture is different with respect to this. So when when we look at when we look at the insurrection. And I do believe it was an insurrection, and I do believe that the people who were involved in it committed crimes. We saw 
a very hybridized, strange version of Christianity involved in that. And I think that's unfortunately been indelibly brain, um, burned into people's brains. And, you know, that is a, a culture and a cult of fear. Uh, and when you when people are fearful, they will do almost anything, depending on the circumstance. And we saw that. So do you have compassion for those folks who are who are feeling that kind of fear? I do. Um, because my life is so much richer with, because of the diversity that I enjoy uh, and the diverse uh, number of folks that I've encountered in my life who are different from me. Uh, they've taught me so much. My ministry in, uh, with Latino folks was a game changer for me. It changed my life uh, for, the, for the better. I mean, it, it just, uh, it, it was an amazing experience. And there was a lot of sadness and shedding of tears, but the, the community is incredible. And the generosity of heart and the sense of uh, fiesta, even though, even though things are going very badly, to give thanks, to love the earth, all of those things. And so I feel sorry for folks who feel the need to be so closed off to difference, because we're all created, in my opinion, in the image of God, and we all have wonderful gifts to bring including our culture and our language and our food and whatever it may be. So it's it's a terrible loss to shut yourself off from that. And it's really a shame. And it's not what Jesus did. Jesus reached out to everybody. Yeah, that's, that's I, I grew up down home, as it were. And one of the reasons that I'm not a Christian, like one of the biggest reasons is that I could never reconcile you know, what Jesus obviously was saying with what I saw the Christians around me doing in, in daily life and the hypocrisy of that, you know, I just couldn't ever reconcile that. And it, it didn't make any sense to me. It, it wasn't attractive to me. I didn't experience, you know, the, the, the upside of that. Plus, you know, my family just wasn't especially religious, so I didn't have, mm -hmm. I didn't have that, but I could never wrap my head around, you know, Jesus says this, and you call yourself a Christian, how, how do you get from there to, it's okay to. Didn't you have a, didn't you have a black friend who wasn't allowed to, to be on the prom court or something like that? Yeah. At least who yeah. you talked to. Yeah. yeah. One of my best friends was black and she was told and she was on homecoming court and she couldn't go with a white boy who was just her friend. I mean, it wasn't even like they were dating and that's just racism. That's not Christianity, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing the, those, I'm yeah, guessing those they, school, those school administrators probably went to church. Yeah, probably. Often, I mean, the people, often the people, you know, involved in that kind of behavior are identify as Christians. Dylan Roof, who shot nine people dead in a prayer meeting who had welcomed him was raised as a Lutheran, and I'm, you know, I'm not disparaging the Lutherans, but I'm just saying he had a Christian formation, and he did that. And so that's very disturbing. I mean, we all we all make mistakes. We all sin, uh, and I define that as conduct that separates us from from God, uh, estranges us from God. And we we all make mistakes, but that's a pretty big one. Does God want us to be righteous or connected? Mm. 
does God want us to be righteous or connected? I think that if we are connected, the, um, the righteousness often follows. Mm. So I would say in the connection, the community, we create an environment of integrity and righteousness. Mm. And I would guess also, if we are truly connected, other people will help us stay on track. Well, yeah, that's ideally, ideally, that's what it's supposed to do. We also have a, a dichotomy in in Christianity, particularly between the more liturgical or uh, Catholic-like ways of worship, like the Episcopal Church, Roman Catholicism, uh, uh, Lutheranism, uh, Orthodoxy, those there is this idea of being the body of Christ where you're working together and you're drawing your examples for conduct from the gospels. In other words, the stories of what Jesus did. And then the sort of second half of the New Testament are letters from primarily Paul and uh, John. And these are more about conduct and about separating yourself and being of the world, but not in it and, or in the world, but not of it. That's, that's it. And so it becomes much more of a faith of a faith of rules and regulations and who's in and who's out. Mm. And so we are very much seeing the evangelical traditions drawing much more from that apostolary set of, of regulations versus the grace and the compassion that we see in the Gospels. I commend a really fine book, The Black Christ by uh, Kelly Brown Douglas, who is a uh, an Episcopal priest, and she is the dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary. And she, she wrote this book several years ago, but it was, um, uh, that was, that book was just really important in my formation as a a theologian and as a priest, uh, understanding where some of these differences come from. She's the one that writes about, you know, every week the slaves heard the same things, you know, slaves obey your masters. And you had to sign something with an X, or if you could write your name as a slave, when you got baptized, that you understood that you were not being freed. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I highly recommend that book if you want to get a deeper understanding about the differences in uh, the approach to the New Testament between the Protestant and more liturgical traditions. That's really helpful. Thank you, Fina. For somebody who's uh, pretty much a pretty much a pagan, um, <laughs> I have very little I have very little experience with the Bible, and and I I appreciate a little bit of understanding about the difference between you know the Gospels and the and the letters. Thank you. has your back. We do, that's who. And you know where to go for fascinating information on our guest background and to take a deeper dive into the issues we cover. Where? Our show notes, of course. We put all the good stuff in one place so it's easy for you to connect with our awesome guests and topics. This week, among other things, you'll find links to Dr. Marsha's website, social media feed, and blog posts so you can help her in the good fight. You can always find the latest show notes at here-together.us slash pod. 
for the latest episode or go to here-together.us slash library for show notes from our full catalog of episodes. The catalog's getting pretty full. Yeah, there's so yeah. much good stuff there. We're yeah. in the 70s, the upper 70s. Yeah, it's kind of gone from the from the little uh, Hammaker Schlemmaker catalog to full-on uh, Sears U-line. and Roebuck. Yeah, the U-line <laughs> catalog. I don't know how many people get the U-line catalog, but it's massive. <laughs> anyway, we want to also invite you to subscribe to our free Community Connections newsletter. I want you to subscribe so you can get weekly show release announcements, special offers, behind the scenes stories, and actionable suggestions for individual and community actions. Every week we uh, feature something that Kelly and or I are doing specifically to kind of live up to the values and mission of this podcast of personal growth, healthy relationships, and community engagement. And mostly it's fun stuff. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes it's parties. We invited everybody know, to a right? party a couple weeks ago. <laughs> so go to here to get here dash together dot us slash join to sign up for that free newsletter. And that's a cute little newsletter too, if I do say so. Charles makes it, and I proofread it. <laughs> okay, now back to the show. Dr. Marcia tells us about the spirituality of resistance and gives us all a clear call to action. No matter how small, it doesn't have to be giant. The science assignment she leaves us with is tied closely to her ideas and her urgent passion for community activism. So check it out. Here we go. Welcome back, everybody. We are still here with the Reverend Dr. Marcia Ledford Esquire, and we are about to turn the corner onto a path of healing and a path of change for this country that's going to give people an opportunity to come together a little bit better. Is that is that too big a vision? Uh, I don't think so. I think right now we have to think really big. Mm. Yeah. I like it. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have to do really big things, but it does mean we have to do something. We could do something big or small. It doesn't matter. The most important thing is that we do what we can as soon as we can. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the spirituality of resistance. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I'm going to do that is because it has prongs. Yay, prongs! (laughs) So the first prong in the spirituality of resistance is doing the inner work that we all need to do to understand what makes us tick and what is really bothering us. In other words, we need to assess what our pain points are. And we need to pray or reflect or meditate or do insight meditation, which is, uh, you know, non-religious. There's all manner of things that we can do to get in greater touch with our own spirituality. Once we do that, and once we know what really bothers us and keeps us laying awake at night, wondering what to do, is then to take that information and do some research and find an organization that will address these issues in a way that you agree with and get excited about. You want to you feel good about the group that you choose. And it could be a congregation. It could be an official community organizing entity. Uh, because I don't have a congregation right now, I am uh, affiliated with the Michigan United, which is, they do incredible work across the state of Michigan. And I work primarily on immigration reform through them. I can't do all of that by myself. And so 
taking those two prongs of the inner work and bringing our personal power to a group to make it exponentially more powerful, we can get things done. Love uh, it. Love look it. At look at Dr. King. Look at uh, Dolores Huerta. Look at Cesar Chavez. Look at Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman. Uh, that was a community organizing effort to create safe houses from the deep south up to the north. So there are ways for us to counteract uh, evil and uh, ignorant uh, construction of evil in our society. Some things are just downright evil. These voter suppression laws that just passed in Georgia, that's evil. That's just basically trying to keep black folks from voting. That's all it is. I mean, let's just be honest. That's what it's that's what it's yeah. about. Now so, why is that why is that evil? Isn't that just a political difference? Isn't that just a you know, just a just a kind of both sides kind of thing? And what's for, the difference between evil and fear? It's evil for me because it takes a group of people similarly situated to me, in other words, they're human beings, and it treats them very dissimilarly because of an immutable characteristic that is deemed to be inferior. Racism is evil. Racism is one of the ultimate forms of sin and separation from God because we have no right to treat others created by our creator like this. So that's why it's evil. What was the fear question? Just because we were talking about fear earlier as a motivator for why people do bad things. And is, is there a difference between that fear motivated crappiness and evil, I guess, is my question. Fear motivated crappiness. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think fear can motivate us to do very crappy uh, slash evil things. I think fear is the most dangerous human emotion. People who are cruel are fearful. I would agree with that. People who fear losing power can be horrible, can, can do unspeakable things. Uh, you know, look at the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Or kneeling on somebody's neck for or nine, kneeling on somebody's neck for, you know, when he's telling you that he can't breathe and he's calling for his mother. And there are children screaming at you to stop. Yeah. Yep. So the 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 counter to this to this evil and this fear, and let me just make sure I understand it, is is to do a lot of self-reflection and yes. a lot of self-awareness about right. what That's, is it what is it that I care most deeply about what is it that's triggering me to put it in yeah. to put it into some of my language and and to spend some time with it to to i'm guessing to find the power there the power in that passion in that individual passion exactly exactly what whatever it is that makes us tick is powerful if we'll just unleash it and then combine with others and combine to be with even others more powerful. Uh, to be even well exponentially powerful the other thing that happens is we get away from avoidance and denial. 
when we finally wake up one morning and say, I really need to work on immigration reform, it just really upsets me what we're doing at the border, for example. That allows us to name the enemy or the problem. And just in doing that, we disempower it just a very little bit. And then when there's a bunch of us doing it, it gets disempowered more and more and more. So Roger Gottlieb wrote a wonderful book, and I'll send you the link for that as well, called The Spirituality of Resistance. And he talks about how when we avoid things, we sort of bury them in the floorboards of our consciousness. Isn't that a marvelous expression? Mm -hmm. But they're still there and we know they're still there and they still are, you know, messing with us, so to speak. Undermining our foundation. Exactly. So when we pull the floorboards up and pull them out of there and say, all right, I'm not going to avoid you anymore. And I'm going to do something as a matter of fact, you to make you go away for good. That's powerful. And avoidance takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of energy to deny I mean, to avoid something. Denial is different in that it looks truth in the face and it says, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to accept that. And I'm going to, in fact, create my own reality. So when we engage in a spirituality of resistance, we do encounter sadness and difficulty because we are, we encounter very difficult things. There's no getting around it. But by Working to defeat them, we hopefully start getting rid of them. We start eradicating their power. Uh, and yeah, we've you know had some two steps up and one step back, but we just have to keep pushing. I was on a podcast show recently with a young man who is uh, artistic and he is a disability advocate. And we were talking about the spirituality of resistance. And he immediately went to the example of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier and their fight in Africa. Because I talked about how we have to prepare when we do this kind of work. We have to understand what the problems are, who the players are, where the power lies. And he said, well, Muhammad Ali did that. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, Joe would just knock people out in you know, less than five rounds. His, he just leveled such a thundering blow, but it made him tired. So Ali decided to do the rope-a-dope where he leaned against the rope and let the rope help him absorb some of those blows. And he made uh, him tired. Yeah. And Ali knocked him out because he prepared. He developed a strategy. And that's all part of it. And that's very fun. And people say to me, <laughs> it is. And people say to me, you know, I don't want to be on the front lines of some protest or whatever. I said, well, you don't have to be. You know, what do you like to do? And they'll say, well, I, I love doing research. And I said, well, we need researchers to prepare. You know, what else do you do? Well, I'm a graphic designer. Well, we need people to develop marketing materials and, you know, outreach uh, materials for people to find out what we're doing. What about you? What do you like to do? Well, you know, I'm kind of a big mouth and a, and a big extrovert. So, all right, you'll be on the front line. That's fine. So we all have a part to play. And they're all important. So that's what the spirituality of resistance is about. Love it. Love it. Thank you for that inspiring description of opportunity uh, for everyone to live a life that is on the good side. Yeah. Me purposeful and meaningful, like we're always talking about. Yes. So, Marcia, what what's next for you? What are you working on these days? 
Well, as you know, I am uh, doing uh, working at Political Theology Matters full time, and uh, I'm in the process of finishing my first book. Okay. Yay! It's going to be a how-to manual for people to become faith-based advocates or public theologians. Uh, And I maintain that we are all, no matter what faith tradition we come from, we're all theologians because we're taught theological dogma, for example, uh, and then we use that information as we navigate our day every, you know, every day. We hear a current event and we think about, well, that's not right, blah blah blah, because. X and such and so and so. So you don't have to have a bunch of letters after your name to be a theologian, because theology means the study of God. And we all do that in our own way, in our own traditions. So I'm going to help folks uh, become more confident in being publicly theologians. I'm going to talk about the spirituality resistance and some of the other things that we've mentioned here and uh, provide lots of online resources and examples too. So I'm really hoping this is going to result in a community of public theologians who get together and share ideas. And I want to encourage people to to check out uh, Marsha's blog posts in particular, even as a, as a, a kind of a non-Christian or a lapsed Christian or whatever, the ideas in those blogs, in particular, the the one about just the boldness of the idea that there's a responsibility of religious leaders to shepherd the people away from lies and bad things. I was like, huh, that was an assumption that I didn't realize that I had left behind. I had, I think I had given up on people of faith Mm. to a certain extent, even though I have, you know, important people of faith in my life who, who, uh, who I believe and trust. I think I'm, the fact that I was surprised by your blog post about that made me realize where my head and heart had gone. I, I really appreciate that. We have a terrible problem in the progressive corner of Christ's holy vineyard in that we don't like telling people what to do. Uh, and we're a lot like herding cats. And <laughs> so, so uh, you know, it's we are used to being on the reactive. We are used to the more conservative corners making some statement and we're on the reactive all the time. That's where I think my work comes in. We need to stop being on the reactive and frame our issues proactively. What does feed my sheep look like? Well, we think it looks like this. And stop allowing other, other corners act like they have the the singular interpretation of our holy texts because yes, they don't. Yes, I yeah. love that. Yeah. Got it. Great. So, Marsha, as you know, we ask all of our guests to, to give us and our audience something to work on for just for seven days, an experiment to try, mm-hmm. a science. And, uh, you know, uh, part of me wants to ask you to go light on us because the last two guests have given us like multi-week science. Yeah, big ones. Seven ones. So like the homework is piling up. I feel like the, <laughs> I feel like the kid who you know who says to the teacher, "But the English teacher gave us a big paper, and the science right. teacher gave us a big diorama to do, and please don't give us more homework." But cuts no ice. But that doesn't that doesn't cut any ice here at the Here Together podcast. So whatever you got, we will take okay. it on. So on the on my homepage, there's a an orange section above the fold, as it were. And there's a, a, a printable download, and it's uh, six ways to be a public theologian. 
Okay. Uh, and there's a there's going to be an accompanying video with it. I think it's going to go up here pretty quick. Pr- probably by the time the show drops, it'll be up. But anyway, people can go to my website, politicaltheologymatters.com, and download this uh, one. Sh- it's a one sheet, so it's it's uh, it's not a big long thing. And try some of the suggestions on there, like. Find the Twitter handle for all of your federal and state elected officials. Mm-hmm. Watch the Twitter video we did on how to interact with politicians because they use Twitter a lot. And it's it's a concise way to be in touch with them. And people say, well, do I need to be in touch when they do what I want them to do? And my answer is absolutely. We can particularly help our Democratic folks because they can justify what they're doing because their constituents are telling them, yes, this is what I want you to do. If you're a moderate Republican, you can voice you know, important views, especially as they are more inclusive and um, whatnot. That's very helpful because then they're hearing you know, alternate messaging from the bulk of their constituency. And as a matter of fact, if enough of you do it, you may be able to turn the way that person votes. Moderate Republicans have a big role to play in the, in the next, next election, absolutely, for sure. Mm. And so there are other examples. One is you can email me, and my email is in that sheet, and tell me what's going on with you, and you know, pick my brain, and you know, I'll help you however I can, and other videos to watch. So just download that and pick and choose a few things that look interesting to you or just meditate. Mm. Just, just sit, meditate. Sit with yourself. Up. Sit yeah. with yourself. So I know that you also do consulting work with churches and you do yes. public speaking so people can uh, bring you to them. Are you going to start traveling at some point uh, well, post-COVID? If, yes. Uh, if given the opportunity, certainly I will. That's something I look very forward to doing. Yes. Great. 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 Well, I think uh, I think I've I've been to church now, <laughs> but I really want to thank you for spending all this time with us and and sharing the passion, even though we don't necessarily agree about everything. Mm-hmm. We agree about so much, and our our aims for the world that we want to live in, I think, are very yes. similar. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that moved me the most tonight was when you spoke about how sad you felt for people who refuse to engage in diversity mm-hmm. and your stories of, of being in the, the Latinx community and what that was like for you. That just, I, mm-hmm. I, I feel very much the same way that that sadness for folks who are afraid of life, life. Yeah. Yeah. That's They're missing out. To. Yep. Yeah. They are. Thank you very much again, the Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford Esquire. We just are going to keep saying that. Yeah, we really enjoy it. <laughs> we really like, funny. We really like saying it. We really like saying it. Thank you so much for being here. It was absolutely a delight. Thank you. How much do you love Dr. Marsha? Uh, maybe as much as the number of degrees she has. Oh my gosh, so many. 
She put up with us saying her full name a bunch of times, like a couple of <laughs> nine-year-olds for one thing. But I really just, I don't know, I feel so drawn to her no-nonsense attitude. Yes. She's seen so much suffering and injustice and experienced it herself, but she's grounded and she's a loving person and she's just a super good hang. Yeah. I just like hanging out with her and, you know, I want excuse to do it more. Absolutely. And, you know, she. nobody could see this except for those of us who were, you know, the three of us who were on the pod together. She had to unplug the light from her computer in order to be able to plug in uh, the charging port or something, something weird with Max. She had limited numbers her of headset. cables. So yeah. by the end, it was just her sort of disembodied head right, floating, right. floating in the uh, in the ether. But she just rolled with it. Yep, you know, she, absolutely. Didn't, she didn't get flustered. Yeah. So what I'm coming away with from this interview is this a couple of com combinations that I hadn't really understood before, which is the power of introspection before reaching out. And I should have mm. picked it up. I mean, it's exactly what Pete Pearson was saying in the episode about engaged Buddhism. Right. right? That the first step is this is this witnessing and this kind of introspection before action. Yeah, you got to get your center. Yeah, and that idea taken of, care of I mean, she talked about it even when she was talking about her calling and the 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 deep meditation and the deep thoughtfulness that that goes into really checking out that calling before you know, making a move on it and, and, but, mm, but then mm -hmm. involving others. And that's right. what I was really interested in this, like, Love it. you know, sort of to put it into to Christian terminology, it's like meditate, pray, be thoughtful, mm -hmm. and then seek out others who are working on what's important to you. Mm -hmm. Find those values, find what's, what's kind of triggering you Ooh, when it yeah. comes to activism. I think partly so that we don't go off half cocked and, and we don't go, trying to solve everything it's like one or, moment it's like you know worrying about the whales and acoustic mm, pollution in the ocean because there's the next, enough issues to go around yeah the next it's uh you know changing our diet because of the way that uh farm workers are treated mm. the next moment it's like worrying about child trafficking the next moment it's you know so it's hard to make an impact if you're all over the place i think so yeah. i think so so you know go deep inside find out what what we value and then don't go it alone find other right, people who are already right. working on the issue don't start another nonprofit. for don't god's sake don't start <laughs> another nonprofit. and i had as i was preparing for this intro outro i i had this realization that some, something very powerful like that happened to me uh i guess two weeks ago when i was attending the uh, local first arizona small business summit and stay with me it's it seems like <laughs> it's a stretch between like spirituality and business it's all connected but not the way local first arizona is going mm -hmm. about it they are going about supporting small and local businesses as a way to produce more equity as a way to produce more sustainability as a way to produce more justice it's really clear that small and local businesses have to be a part of thriving communities right through of, connection and community through connection and community yeah. that um small and local businesses are a way for you know uh folks of color and women to gain economic power mm -hmm. so i'm listening to all these amazing stories about how that's happening with local businesses and with local business organizations and i'm a alone in my home office with my headphones on attending this webinar and I started pounding my desk oh, yeah. in excitement so that okay so that's really clear that my mm -hmm. body is telling me that this is really very important to me. right and that this is something that that's just making me jump up 
Uh, and there's the community right there. There's the right. community to be in solidarity with right there. So I'm, uh, I just feel really it. excited for that opportunity to, to work with a bunch of people whose values are clearly in line with mine. So clearly in line with mine. So I've already had a couple of phone calls with local first Arizona people about, you know, how we're going to move forward and how we're going to combine kind of what I'm working on, on kind of revised leadership and leadership from a new strength uh, with with support for small businesses and, and support for equity and inclusion and all of that. Mm. I'm really excited. So this episode with the Reverend Dr. Marsha Ledford Esquire helped put that into context for me. Right on. Thank you all oh for listening gosh. to that. I'm kind of, you know, like I said, I'm always experiencing personal growth in real time in front of you all. <laughs> So what do we got coming up, Kelly? I'm super excited to tell our hottie fans about Christian De La Huerta, who we had an amazing conversation with yesterday. He's kind of part two in the Spirit series, or maybe even part three if we count Dr. Marissa from episode 76. Is it the springtime or is it Spirit calling us on the phone? I don't know, but we delved into more of that spiritual connection with Christian, who ironically is more Eastern leaning than, than traditional Christianity. And we found out how the hero's journey is connected to the breath and how the ego is a baseball. <laughs> so be sure to subscribe to Here Together so you get this powerful, inspiring conversation dropped right into your feed because now you really want to know how the ego mm-hmm. is a baseball but in the meantime be sure to go to www.politicaltheologymatters for marsha's suggested action items love it yeah join us on instagram at rocketfeather one and of course join us in the here together community lab on facebook to continue the conversation to contribute to the conversation meet other like-minded hotties uh interact with previous guests and stay connected to these ongoing ideas about community, relationships, personal growth. This is Charles Matthews. And Kelly Roberge wishing you the great gift of purpose and connection. We, we love, love you. you. The Here Together podcast is a project of Rocket Feather Creative.